Please be seated. This morning we spent come to the opening of John's Gospel in John chapter one for the third time. The beauty of this um, poetry is has been worth our time and, and continuing to spend time in meditating. Uh, this morning, we'll be focusing our attention on the last portion of it. And while all of it is in view, we will read beginning in verse 14 and study those uh, verses uh, from 14 through 18. Before we come to the Word, let's go to our God in prayer. Our God and Father, we do come to you and commit this time to you as an expression of our worship and our adoration. We come to listen to what you have spoken to us through your servant John. For your word comes to, comes to us not only to inform us, but to form us. It changes us. It turns our attention to Christ and transforms those who believe, those who repent, and believe all over again to become more like Jesus. Lord, by your Spirit, may we see Jesus more clearly as he is revealed in these words and seeing him. May we both be broken and made whole and new, that we would become more like him. For in him, and becoming like him, we find the joy and the peace and the purpose that we all long for and are prone to look for in various places, but are only found fully in him. Lord, may we be more in him, that we may rest in him and become like him. And so experience what you've called us to experience, and to glory in you. We pray in him. Amen. John chapter 1, verse 14. Hear the word of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The word of the Lord. May we be nourished in our soul and in our lives by it. In the opening scenes of the musical Camelot, King Arthur appears in a field dressed in clothes of a, of a common peasant. To look at him, you'd have no idea of his status or of his royalty. In fact, Queen Guinevere, who was not yet his queen but would one day be his queen, first saw him in that field she had no idea of who he was, either personally or uh, in, in his rank in, in that kingdom. It was simply a man whose outward appearance gave no indication of his status, and the king appears as a mere peasant. And so it is also with Jesus. As John tells us in these opening words, that the word that was with God in the beginning, the word that was 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 with God, the Word that is God, 
then as we read this morning, that word came and dwelt, became flesh and came and dwelt among us for a time. In other words, in the person of Jesus Christ, God came to us in the flesh. And yet, as we saw a few weeks ago, as John also records, that even though Jesus came to us in the flesh, he records this for us in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And we see even the irony of that even more if you back up another verse into verse 10. He who created the world, the world didn't recognize him, and the world did not receive him. So the natural question that we need to be asking ourselves is why didn't the world, why didn't his own receive him? Now Isaiah gives us some idea of that because Isaiah prophesied in advance that he had no beauty and no majesty that we should be drawn to him. And so the people of that day, those who were able to see Jesus physically, the word that had come in the flesh, they looked at him and there was nothing that necessarily would necessarily draw them to him. And while that answers the question, we can dig down a little bit deeper and say whatever the details in any individual's life, it all boils down to this. Every person had certain expectations of what the Messiah would be like, what God must be like, and when Jesus came to them in the flesh, Jesus didn't measure up to their own expectations. Consequently, he came to them, but even his own people, the ones that he came to bless and to redeem, they did not receive him because Jesus doesn't measure up to whatever their preconceived ideas are. Now, it'd be easy for us to assume that this is a problem of people who lived in a day that was ignorant and superstitious and just a bygone era. And that we who live on this side of the cross, the who have all of the resources available to us, including the, the whole completion of God's word in the Bible, we would not be inclined to be as foolish and to make that mistake. And yet, if we think that, we would be mistaken. Consider what Penn State sociology professor Stephen Prothero wrote in his book titled American Jesus. Let me read some of what he offers to us. See how Americans of all stripes have cast the man from Nazareth in their own image is to examine through a looking glass the kaleidoscope character of the American culture. In the United States, Jesus has not stood on some rock of ages, but on the shifting sand of economic circumstances, political calculations, and cultural trends. The American Jesus has been something of a chameleon. Christians have depicted him as both black and white, male and female, straight and gay, a socialist and a capitalist, a pacifist and a warrior, a Ku Klux Klansman and a civil rights activist. And the whole of Prothero's book is to just, just explore the different declarations of belief of what Jesus must be like of the church and outside of the church of Americans throughout much of the 20th century, all of which are all dist are distortions of the reality based upon preconceived ideas making Jesus to be like us rather than Jesus coming to us that we might become like him. It's been said that God created man after his own image and we've now returned the favor. And it's also said that we can know that we are doing that if God is in our imagination, 
one who loves the things that we love and hates the things that we hate. If that's the case, then there's a good chance that you have made God, Jesus, into your own image, into your own imagination. He's not the one that had come in the flesh. He doesn't measure up to whatever your preconceived ideas are. The question is not really whether or not you do it or whether I do it. The question is how do I do it? How do you do it? In what ways are we inclined to try to make Jesus fit into our own image and, and to value our own values? It is the reality. It's the common reality for all of us. It's our natural instinct as a consequence of the first fall is we tend to be self-centered, knowing that there's something greater outside of us. We want God to come and validate us rather than simply to redeem us and to transform us. And since the question is not whether or not we do it, but how we do it, the greater question is whether or not we are willing, recognizing that we do it, to then subordinate our preconceived ideas to the reality of Jesus Christ who has come to us in the flesh. We're reminded again that John is telling us this because this is our inclination, and he's saying that word, the true God, he came to us, the fullness of God was embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, the real deal came in that person, even if it's difficult for us to swallow. In 1977, a, a really, really, really bad movie came out titled, Oh God, starring George Burns and John Denver. If you have not seen it, give thanks to God. Um, <laughs> if you have seen it, there is hope uh, for us. I, the, the film is just theologically warped. I mean, blasphemous would probably be an appropriate word to be used, but warped is, is also true. But despite all of the things that make it such a, a horrendous film, I do remember having seen it one, one scene that makes a palatable illustration. George Burns in the role of God, and many of you not know who George Burns is. He's a frumpy, little, cigar-smoking, odd-looking person. Shows up at a grocery store where John Denver is the assistant manager of the store. And George Burns tells him that he's God, and he's called John Denver to go remind people of the culture that God is still around and that people should follow him. John Denver looks at George Burns and says... This is not what I imagine God would look like. To which George Burns says, I chose an image that you can understand. And there's a picture there of the reality that Jesus Christ, who's come to us, the fullness of God, he's come to us even though we didn't recognize him, but it's also so that we can understand. Because the scriptures tell us that God's glory is so great, we can't possibly comprehend who he is. In fact, God told Moses that if anybody even saw his face, it would undo us. They would not just fall down, but they would die. No one can see God and, and live. God's glory is so much greater than what we can comprehend, and yet we needed to know God, and so God chose to send Jesus in our likeness and a form that we would be able to understand. And yet even in that form that looks like us, that apparently is not impressive to us, John declares the fullness of God. Everything that it means to be God is embodied in that person of Jesus Christ. And he is the one who has come to us. 
as we've looked at these opening words, these opening verses, we've seen that God has revealed himself through the writing of John in, in different images. And key words that we've looked at that reflect the image that have significant meaning in our understanding of who God is and what he's done. One that pops up again today that we used, we looked at when we started this series is the word. The word, word that carries significant implications for our understanding and the, the way that we live. And a couple of weeks ago we looked at light, that Jesus is the, the light that came into the world. And the implication there is that we not only can understand God because we are able to see by that light, but we're also able to see the entirety of the world and our own lives by that which has been enlightened. And this morning we've come to another word here that is the word grace. And the thing that's particularly interesting to me about the word grace here is the way that John uses it. See, while grace is a very common word throughout all of the New Testament, John in his writings only uses it six times, two of which are in the book of Revelation. The other four are in this gospel, and they are all in this particular passage. This is the only places that that John uses the word grace. And yet the power behind what John says in his usage of the word grace enables us to understand an aspect of what grace is to us and for us that we wouldn't see otherwise, or if he used it, perhaps just all over. But even more intriguing than, to me than the fact that he uses it so infrequently is the phrase that we have that really I think is the heart of this portion that we're looking at, that we see in verse 16. As verse 16 says, and from his fullness, all that God is in the person of Jesus Christ, We have all received grace upon grace. That is a tremendous and an important statement for us to understand that God wanted us to understand. Now, in some of your translations, it might say something slightly different. In the King James Version, it says that we all receive grace for grace. In the NIV, it says grace in place of grace that we've already received. And if you're carrying around the, the Living Bible, it says we've received blessing upon blessing that are heaped upon us. All of which, even consistent with, with the ESV that I read, uh, say, they, they do tell us some important things to understand. All of them are appropriately reminding us that we receive blessing after blessing, that there seems to be an escalation of grace that is promised in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is absolutely correct. Where I believe the ESV is much more accurate than what some of the other translations are is in the implications. Because the way that some of them could be read would imply that, okay, God gave us a grace and either that wore out or wasn't very good and so he just kind of moved that aside and he's replaced that with a a new grace. And while it it seems to be the case, it's, it's misleading. In fact, it may even be logically inconsistent. Because if it was a grace that was insufficient, inadequate, that that needed replacing, then, you know, and we're going to keep getting grace, and what we have now may also be inadequate. And that's not consistent with what the word grace means and what we've received in the person of Jesus Christ. But what the ESV captures from the Greek says that it's not an issue of replacement, but rather a foundation upon which more grace is built. 
that we have grace, a foundation of grace, and then on that foundation, more grace is built. And, the, and if you read the following verses where we're going to focus our attention this morning, we see that consistency because John says we've received grace upon grace, so there's a foundation and then there's something built upon it. And then he immediately goes in and says this, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I would suggest to you that that is the basis, the foundation, and then that which is built upon that we want to look at this morning. The first we need to look at is the foundation, and the foundation grace is the grace of the law. Now, I understand if that for some sounds somewhat oxymoronic. You know, it's one of those kind of phrases that seems to be mutually, the words mitigate themselves, the jumbo shrimp, civil war, words that just don't really go together, but they convey something. I mean, grace of the law just doesn't resonate with us often. Grace is what we need when we don't keep the law. It's not, you know, we don't think of it as a grace itself. The law is what shows us, the law is what makes us feel bad. We realize that we aren't as good as we would like to imagine that we are or that we, that we think we are. So how can something that makes us feel bad be a grace? I mean, that's the way most of us would be inclined to think of it. And even if you think of law as something more positive, law is simply a set of rules. And I don't know about you, but I rarely find myself excited when I'm reading about a new set of rules. If I pick up the paper sometime this week and hear that, uh, that Congress or the state of Virginia has passed these new regulations, I'm probably not going to say, yes! My life is more full now. I'm going to be thinking, we don't do what we're already supposed to be doing. What are these new ones going to do? And it just, it's the way that I tend to think about rules and about laws. And so here John is saying, the law is a grace. Well, law is a grace if we think of it in this way. The grace of the law is seen in the fact that our God didn't leave us in the dark wondering how we ought to live our lives, or even wondering about himself. You see, the people who are humanists who believe that there's no purpose in life, that there is no God, and that man is left just to figure things out for himself, we live our lives in a society when that's the prevailing view that has no real foundation and no real sense of the way that we ought to live. We decide based on the tyranny and the oppression of the majority, whoever's in power, they have the rules, which is why the culture continually shifts. There is no foundation. We never know. We simply adapt. And so we're still left in the darkness. Many of the pagan religions of the world, certainly that predated this, but still exist in the world today, they never are quite sure what their God is like and what their God wants from them. So they're left to their own imaginations to try to offer up certain kinds of sacrifices and, and, and activities that they think might amuse and appease their God. And our God, who is beyond us and who created us and, who, and we messed it up, he certainly would have been well within his right to just allow us to figure it all out. But in his own nature and his own character, he gave to us a gift that we had not deserved, which is instruction about who he is, what brings him pleasure, and how we ought to live. So in that sense, it is appropriate for us to think of the law that was given through Moses to be a gift, grace, something that we have not earned, something we haven't deserved something that can benefit us. But I think we would find even more 
significance of the idea of grace of a law, if we understand the concept that theologians and Bible scholars talk about when they say the three uses of the law. The law is not just simply a set of statutes that only give us direction, but there are actually purposes in our lives that benefit us spiritually, and in understanding these, we recognize all the more the glory of the grace of the law that is given to us. Now, if you're a note-taker, these are the three things that you probably need to write down this morning. If you're not a note-taker, these are three things that you ought to write down, but chances are you don't have a pencil, so you'll have to figure this out and do what I used to do in high school is ask the note-takers, can I cheat, borrow your notes? But however you're going to do that, we need to understand the three uses of the law. The first use of the law is simply this, although there's no simple about it. It is a revelation of the holiness of God. Every law that is expressed in all of the scriptures tells us something about the nature and the character of our God. And the fact that God is consistent with the own laws that he has given, it enables us to realize how holy he is because he keeps not just the general sense of them, but, and, but all of it because these are expressions of who he is we can actually benefit from the law when we read the different laws even the mundane mind-numbing ones that we would read in some of the old testament books when we would ask ourselves so what does this law tell us about god's values and behind those values what must that tell us about the character of our god and if we look through the lens of the law back to God with the understanding that it's revealing to us something of his character, we begin to see more of the majesty, of the holiness, the greatness of our God. And so the law is beneficial in that, and that itself would be worth the price of the law. But there's a second use of the law that goes along with that, that also reveals the character and the nature of the glory and holiness of our God. And that is a twofold use, which is the law breaks us and drives us to the cross. See, the law reveals to us how we are to live. The law then also reveals to us how we do not live, that we do not live in accordance with the holiness and the standards that God has designed us for. And so we are left broken. Without the law, we wouldn't even know whether or not we are broken or not. We would just compare ourselves to the guy sitting next to us. Or we would do what most of us do, compare us to somebody that we're quite certain that we'll measure up well against. But we would have no real accurate assessment of who we are. But the law given to us shows us what is right, reveals to us what is wrong. And if any of us are honest, we recognize that we therefore are wrong. This is compounded when we're told that in the scriptures that, that the law is not a checklist of things so that as long as you score in the 80th percentile, that's a B, so that's pretty good. This is pass-fail. 100%, you pass. 99%, you fail. And there is no extra credit. If you fail, you deserve death. You're alienated from God because the law is an entirety. We're told that if you do not keep the law in its entirety, if you break it at any point, you're guilty of breaking the entirety of it. So one error 
which is a nice way of saying one act of rebellion, one simple disinterest in God at a moment when you're eight years old. It seems unfair, but God in his holiness and his just is our lives are to be oriented to him and we're to live for him. If we failed, we failed and we're all left without excuse. So the question is, how do we respond to the fact that we are broken? Well, many people think that they're going to double down and through their efforts, they're going to impress God. But again, there is no extra credit. But God's given us the law in order to drive us, knowing that we are fallen, knowing that we're broken, to expose that so that we would go to the gift he's given us of the cross. The law in this sense is somewhat like when you go to the dentist and you chew those little tablets and it shows where all the plaque is. You know, very few people are going to, you know, pride themselves and compare, hey, I only had a little bit of plaque. You just know that all it exposes is there's still something wrong. And it drives us to the cross where we find the character of God revealed in the grace of Jesus Christ because it's in the cross that Jesus went on our behalf as our substitute to pay the price that we should have paid and to free us from the enslavement that we have to sin and to doing wrong. He ransomed us. He redeemed us. We see the character of the glory of God's grace when he's given us these things to reveal our brokenness so that we can repent and believe and see the glory of God. And then the third use of the law, the first use, again, it reveals the glory of God. The second use of the law is it breaks us and drives us to the cross. The third use of the law is this. I, it, it sometimes is talked talk about as, as moral guidance or, or moral restraint. I prefer to look at it this way. The third use of the law is tells us how we can express our gratitude to God. How we can say thank you for the salvation and the gift that we receive through His Son, Jesus Christ. And the reason I say that that's the purpose of it is because Jesus said to His disciples, if you love me, obey what I command. Now, we in our self-centeredness have this tendency to twist that and think that what Jesus said, if you want me to love you, obey what I commanded. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus is talking to those who were his followers, those who were redeemed, those who were the objects of his love and his affection, the beneficiaries of his sacrifice and his love, and saying, if you love me, obey. In other words, the picture here is somebody who recognizes something of the gift that has been given to us through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we have life, and now we're looking at God in the person of Jesus Christ and we're stumped how do we repay this you don't how do we express our gratitude and our thanks Just do what I've told you to do and irony is is when we find that we do what he's told us to do life usually goes better even if we experience difficulties and hardship because it's the way life was designed to be and we find that the law itself yet again is a grace that is given to us it's given to us as an expression of his love we can't out love God and yet we say to God, we love you simply by obedient, being obedient to what he's commanded us to do. And when we recognize the three uses of the law, it's not just this theological points that we get, but we actually benefit spiritually. It's actually the picture of the way that we grow, the way that we are renewed spiritually. Think about your automobile. From my experience... It is possible to have a brand new battery that is dead the next day if you didn't realize your alternator didn't work. 
But if your alternator works, the battery which charges the ignition and then the power of the engine working through the alternator actually recharges the battery. They work together in order to bring renewal and power and strength. The three uses of the law, God's grace to us in the law, work together to turn our attention to God, to recognize our brokenness and drive us to the cross, enable us to live, and the grace of the law continually renews us rather than trying to live out our own efforts and draining ourselves. God's grace continually infuses and empowers us. And the irony and the promise of the gospel is this, is the grace of the God is not simply to bring forgiveness, but the grace of God for the believer empowers you to keep the very laws that you can't keep on your own efforts. This is the glory of the grace of God, and it's worthy of music. All right, so that's... Thank you, whoever uh, got the phone call. And it's why the great Puritan John Owen says, let no man say that he understands the gospel who does not understand the law. See, God gave us, through Moses, his servant, the foundation of the law, the grace of the law. It is a grace, and it has not been replaced, but it has been built upon. And the grace that has been built upon that grace comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of the gospel and the good news. See, otherwise we would have these religious rituals that we would need to be performing, never knowing whether we're performing enough, trusting in the sacrifices that we're being offered, which adds an indication of in God's law how gracious he is to us, because he doesn't even just tell us what we ought to do, he tells us what we need to do when we don't do what we ought to do. But all of that pointed to a sacrifice that would be offered once for all time, and rather than be living and judging ourselves on the basis of the law, we live in freedom through faith in Jesus Christ who then empowers us to say thank you by keeping the laws that somehow seemed oppressive to us. And so we have a grace that is built upon that grace. But John says that there's kind of details in this grace. He says that the fullness of God in the person of Jesus Christ came grace and truth. So what are the truths of grace that we experience through Jesus Christ? And it's the understanding of this life, of ourselves, of this world, of God, and how we relate to him. It is the grace and truth of God and the gospel. And while to talk about all of the implications of the truth that are embodied in Jesus Christ is impossible because we'll spend an eternity exploring them. Theologians have categorized three things that we can wrap our minds around of the truth, three categories of truth that are themselves inexhaustible in this lifetime, but all work together. The first we see is the, the truth about man, because in Jesus Christ we see what we were created to be, in perfect fellowship with God, reflecting the character of God, delighting in the presence of God. And yet, not only do we see the reality of what man is to be, we see the reality of what we are because we are not that. And so we see through Jesus Christ our own brokenness, our own self-absorption, our own hopelessness. That's the reality of our condition ever since the fall which is one of the reasons why I stand amazed at the culture and even at myself as I find myself getting uptight about upcoming elections when it seems like, well, we have no good candidates. Can we go without a president? 
as if one president or another, and don't get me wrong, we, there's, there's need for order. But we have this idea that some person, some political ideology is going to lead us in a way that we need, and it's foolishness. Because whoever is running, they embrace either one or parts of different philosophies, whether it's a, a liberal philosophy that believes that you know, man is always abusive, it will always abuse his authority, and it requires a government that would be able to restrain that authority. Now, the problem with that is the government is broken people who are intent on using their own power to abuse, period, regardless of what party affiliation somebody has. That's just the brokenness of humanity. Or it may be the more conservative side that says, look, people are basically good, so leave them alone. Let them figure out what to do on their own. And yet, because we're broken and self-absorbed, then there's power that corrupts. And those characteristics can also be flip-flopped. It doesn't really matter. These are simple philosophies of this world that are employed by broken, fallible individuals, and the hope is not found in either of them being set free to do what they want to do. Jesus shows to us that what man is and what man ought to be, and we're not what we ought to be, but he is what we can be. And so in Jesus, we see what God has created us to have fellowship and the hope that we have in him. But we also see not only the reality of man, but we see the reality of God. We see the truth about God. Because Jesus embodies the fullness of God. He removes speculation. We want to know God, we study Jesus, and then we know more of what God is like, even though we're in process. We're growing to know more and more of what God is like. It's not exhaustive, but we live with more and more light the more we know Jesus because we know what God is like. And so we have two tremendous categories right there. You know everything you need to know about man, you know everything you need to know about God. When you exhaust and, and master both of those, come back to me and I'll give you new homework assignments. But we also see in the person of Jesus the truth of God's salvation that he reconciled people to himself. Because the Word became flesh. The Word didn't appear to become to, to flesh. It didn't look like it was in the flesh. The Word became like us. And that tells us is that our hope and our God is not a concept. The gospel is not a concept, but it is concrete in the person of Jesus Christ who has given himself that we might be reconciled to God, empowered and to live to his fullness, all that we desire to be. I'm going to wrap up with this. The last thing that John says to us here is this. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. And that is a truth. It's a truth that John is trying to help us to understand. God reveals himself as a spirit. He is invisible, and yet he is at work. But it is a reality, it is a troubling reality for many, is that God is invisible, which is one of the reasons why people are prone to make icons, something that they can see. Others just kind of wrestle with the tension of a belief in a God that they cannot see, cannot touch, cannot feel. And a British philosopher named John Wisdom had coined a, a parable in the middle of the 20th century. 
that was called the Parable of the Invisible Gardener. The parable goes like this. Once upon a time, two explorers came upon a clearing in the jungle. And in the clearing were growing many flowers and some weeds that were on the side. And one explorer said to the other, some gardener must tend to this plot. And so they pitched their tents and they waited to see, but no gardener ever appeared. And so the first explorer said again, perhaps he's an invisible gardener. And so they set up a barbed wire fence and they electrified it and they set bloodhounds out on patrol because they were familiar with H.G. Wells, the Invisible Man, and found that the Invisible Man could both be smelled and touched, though he could not be seen. He could be touched through electronics, uh, things like that. So they set these things up. But as they waited, no shrieks were ever heard to suggest that some intruder had received a shock. No movements of the wire betraying an invisible climber. And the bloodhounds never gave a cry. And so the believer, still not concerned, says this. But there is a gardener who's invisible, intangible, insensible to electric shocks. And a gardener who has no scent and makes no sound. A gardener who comes secretly to look after the garden which he loves. To which the other explorer, who is more skeptical, says, you have a gardener who is invisible, untouchable, undetectable, unsmellable. There is no way. What's the difference between that gardener and no gardener at all? And college freshmen have been hit over the head with this parable for generations now, challenged in their faith, even those who have come from the church, and they're realizing they, they don't know the answer to that question. Because our God is invisible, and as John declares here, no one has ever seen God. And that is a problematic for many, many people. And while wisdom's parable is challenging, it is not unanswerable. Because John gives us the answer. God is invisible, intangible. But in this statement, we have verifiable proof. In Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, we have seen God incarnated. The verifiable historicity of Christ risen from the dead, not only from those who were his followers, but for people that were skeptics and objected to him, that history declares to us that Jesus must be who he says that he is because he rose from the dead, conquering the, by demonstrating the glory of God's grace in the person who has come to us in the form of the word and the glory of his power over even death itself. And our hope is rested in that person of Jesus Christ. And John writes to us to say, look, no one's ever seen God except Jesus has come to us and in him we see the fullness of God. And we recognize because of Jesus Christ that he is an accessible and inexhaustible fountain of grace from which, in whom, through whom, we receive grace upon grace. That is our hope. That's God's promise.